I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. You are listening to a new spin on autism, Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And today, as always, is a wonderful and exciting day. It's especially exciting because we're talking to somebody all the way over in Australia. So I'm really thrilled for another reason as well, which I'll tell you in one second, but I just want to remind you to stay to the end of the show where we will have stories from the road. And I'll try to put it all together and make sense of this whole marvelous kerfuffle we're about to have. All right, we're going to talk with Tony Atwood. Before I introduce you to him and tell you his creds, I want to tell you why I wanted so badly to talk to him. You know, sometimes you meet people along the way in your career and you remember them forever. I remember them for a reason. And Tony I met, I don't know if he remembers meeting me, but I met him in Bakersfield. He was giving a talk and I was there to meet the people that were putting it on and they were considering having me as their speaker. And so I listened to him talk and he did two marvelous, wonderful things that really inspired me and changed how I worked um, henceforth. One of them was... He said to me at the end of his talk, I said, um, well, that was a great talk. I was really entertained. And he goes, if there's anything in there you can use, steal it. Have at it. And it was a sort of a modeling of a behavior that I wanted and hadn't ever seen before, which is this is information for us to share. And let's just share, 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 never mind any of the other nonsense, which was really good because one of the things in his talk was he was describing the various places on the spectrum and how sort of breaking it down for people so that they could understand moving along that spectrum. And I was always dealing with parents who are super unhappy and feeling very guilty about the hope stories they'd read and the cure stories they'd read. And they'd have a very low-functioning child, and they'd read about a higher-functioning child uh, doing some therapy or other and being cured of autism. And then they'd feel like bad parents for not finding the cure for their child. And it's a constant problem in the world of autism because of the nature of the way it's talked about. And here he broke it down so beautifully And when I wrote my book, I took that concept and talked about driving along a highway and some people are in one coast and other, you know, you're trying to get from the West Coast to the East Coast. And if you're already almost on the East Coast, it's a very different situation than if you're trying to drive all the way from the West Coast and you're riding a bike. So so it was inspired by his talk. I'm excited to have him here for you, but he's much more than just my inspiration. He's many people's inspiration, has a great presence on the internet. 
internet. Everybody talks good about him. Tony Atwood, he's well known for sharing his knowledge of Asperger's syndrome. He has an honors degree in psychology from the University of Hull, master's degree in clinical psychology from the University of Surrey, and a PhD from the University of London. So he's Dr. Atwood, and he's currently adjunct associate professor of Griffith University in Queensland. Okay, here's the thing, and I, we're going to talk about this. He's written several publications on Asperger's syndrome. His book titled Asperger's Syndromes now being translated into several languages. And what I want to talk to Tony about is how the fact that the DSM-5 has changed that designation is affecting how he presents, what he writes, how he is received. And so let's talk to Dr. Tony Atwood. Hello and welcome for being here. Oh, thank you, Lynette. You, you gave me a wonderful introduction there. And I, I just make a comment that my own view is that uh, what I've learned, I've usually learned not from professors or reading the literature. It's from people with an autism spectrum disorder. And it's their gift to me, my insight into their situation. So I have no ownership of it. I want to share it. I'm not interested in creating my own uh, entrepreneurial um, empire. I want to pass on the information. And you're not trying to get Asperger's named after you, because <laughs> so we're good. This leads us into DSM-5 and the decision to abandon the term Asperger's syndrome. My first comment on this is you can't, in a book, legislate for the public to abandon a term that they found useful for several decades. So it's a little bit like the term Alzheimer's, I think it will still continue to be used because it's a lot easier than what I'm supposed to say as a clinician instead of Asperger syndrome is autism spectrum disorder level one without intellectual or language impairment, which is such a complicated <laughs> phrase. I prefer Asperger syndrome. So do I. And I've also asked some of the younger people and older people, but mostly just recently I had a young boy on who was diagnosed with Asperger's and I asked him how he felt about being considered high-functioning autistic. And he found it difficult. Um, and it is true that most of the people I know that have had an Asperger's diagnosis, they feel that a, an identification with that term. And if you strip that away from them, I think it's kind of challenging. Um, now, in Australia, how does the DSM-5 affect your work? Well, I think it, the DSM, although it's originally from the United States, is an, an international document that is used both by clinicians, but it's also used legally. And so I think whatever DSM-5 says has to be taken seriously. And so there's been a lot of concern as to how a very select group of people would actually redefine autism spectrum disorder. My own view is there's some good bits. One is that they've included sensory sensitivity. I think that's an excellent idea. Legitimizes a major daily problem for those with autism spectrum disorders. But also the criteria are fairly strict. And the research has suggested that up to about 20%, at least 10 to 20% of those who previously would have been diagnosed will no longer achieve that diagnosis. And that concerns me. Uh, well, can you put that into words that the moms and dads out there can understand? What would be um, an example of somebody that might not get the diagnosis that would have got it before? Like, describe it for them. Okay, this would be things like PDD, NOS, and those who are Asperger features but not absolutely certain. 
So it's taking the top end, the top, I suppose, 10 to 20% in ability and fragments of ASD, and restricting the term for those who are much more severely affected. And yet those who had that sort of 10 to 20% previously on the spectrum are now no longer going to get services or understanding. So they sort of fall through the cracks, which is always a problem when you're on the edge of, a, of any kind of diagnosis. It's hard to get the help that you need, and sometimes you end up then multiply diagnosed as an adult with a whole lot of things that the stress of not getting the help caused, don't you think? Yeah, you're going to get secondary mood disorders, anxiety disorders, depression, suicidal ideation, low self-esteem, but also not being supported in terms of career and so on. Now, government agencies and insurance companies are going to be absolutely delighted because they have fewer responsibilities and will save a lot of money. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Okay, so we've, we've kind of hashed this out a little bit. How does, with you having written books about Asperger's and that sort of thing, do you get uh, comments from parents who say, well, now it doesn't count, it's not, it's no longer valid? Okay, I think that that happens, but I'm going to go into another dimension, and that is new diagnoses of uh, children and adults, and they're going to find it very hard when somebody suggests that your son or yourself has autism. And their view is, I'm not autistic. How dare you suggest I'm autistic? I can speak. I'm smart. I've got a degree. What on earth are you saying? I have an autism spectrum disorder. And I think that's going to dissuade some people themselves going for a diagnostic assessment or some parents accepting that that child who's brilliant at mathematics but doesn't have a friend is autistic. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I was diagnosed um, with Asperger's, and my problem's exactly the opposite. I'm terrible at math and great at friends. And so it can be somewhat confusing because I'm great at friends on the surface, but I don't invite them over. And you know, I have all these kind of quirks. I would never make a diagnosis now. Yeah. I think what you're describing there is, is, is I'm exploring uh, the nature of the personality of the person with ASD. And in a way, you've got a mixture of what the, we would use in the old term, introverts and extroverts. Now, there are those who are very quiet, withdrawn, shy, hesitant about interacting. But then there are those who are, in fact, quite motivated to socialize and to make friends, but may not read the cues that are needed in that situation. That leads other people to feel, well, they're very enthusiastic about talking, but they missed the cues that were so obvious to other people. So there's almost like an introverted or extroverted form of Asperger's. Yeah, it's interesting. I, for me, it was, um, you know, I couldn't go to parties. There were too many energies and, and too many personalities coming my way, and I didn't know what my role was. But I could go to a dance and be super extroverted because that kept everyone away because I was so busy dancing and everyone thought I was the party girl. Meanwhile, I hadn't talked to anyone. So it was an interesting confusion for diagnosis that's all gotten cleared up over the years. But, um, but I do think someone like that would be left out of getting help completely. Now, Lynette, can I take you on? I'm Absolutely. Sorry. Take me on. Take me on. <laughs> you said this very important. You said dancing. Mm -hmm. Now, the point of dancing is rhythm. 
And I find those with ASD are often much better in thinking and socializing and ability if there's rhythm, whether it be riding on a horse, bouncing on a trampoline, dancing to music. So it seems that there's something about rhythm that allows the person with ASD to express abilities that may be so much more difficult without rhythm somewhere in their environment. Well, for me, that works as pacing. So for me, if I really need to solve a problem or if I'm having a focus issue, even today, I, I'll pace. So it's interesting because I adopted autistic kids and they came off the spectrum and, you know, the spectrum being redefined helped us come off even easier. And, uh, <laughs> but I have one boy who's still very, neat, very, very challenged. And so if I'm having a problem in pacing, he paces too, and the two of us are pacing and pacing, and we're both better at communicating while we pace. For yes. dancing, I, I remember very distinctly uh, being at a dance and moving this only this one way and a bunch of people going in a circle behind me and making fun of it because it was a weird way of moving. So I made it my, uh, I made, it was very important to me to become a better dancer. So I spent an awful lot of time working with rhythm on myself in my room by myself. Um, and it, it, it was hard. It took me years and years and years to separate the different parts of my body. But once I did it, yes. Once I could work within the rhythm of music, music freed me up 100%. Yeah, and, and this is where I, <clears throat> I also use music. But one of my new areas that I'm working in, well, I've worked in for a long time, but now much more formally, is depression and ASD. And people with ASD have many reasons for feeling depressed, but they often have difficulty converting their thoughts and feelings to speech. However, if you ask that person to to select a music track that in the lyrics or the music describes their thoughts and feelings. You get an insight and eloquence you can't get with look at me and tell me. Yeah, I, I agree. I remember all of this I, so clearly. Actually, this is a fun show. I'm going to let you doctor me. Okay, here's something. I was suicidal my whole life the minute I wasn't focused. So going to the bathroom... Um, would be a dangerous thing to do because the second that I went into the bathroom there was nothing to do and I couldn't focus on working hard or learning something or solving a problem of some kind and so I would start to feel like I wanted to kill myself and lay on I'd see myself laying dead on the bathroom floor and I learned to read labels in the in everyone's bathroom I as soon as I sat down to Void. I would grab whatever they had in their in their cupboard and start reading labels to keep my mind busy. Want to talk okay. to that? That's an interesting yeah. combination with what you were just saying about depression. Okay. What you're doing there is you're creating a thought blocker to stop intrusive, anxious, or depressive thoughts. The special interest does exactly the same, but far more effectively because it gives you pleasure and energy as well. So what the person is looking for is, I've got to do something to stop these intrusive negative thoughts coming into my brain. And so in that void, that vacuum, the person feels incredibly vulnerable and uncomfortable. Absolutely. That's exactly it. <laughs> so for me, I solved all of that with neurofeedback. I tried many things. And when I found neurofeedback, it was very eureka. I mean, it just it just saved me so quickly. It was just amazing. Um, 
what are your approaches to this? Let, let's talk about this. So you, let's say you met somebody who just can't stop being focused without ending up in a deep depression the second they relax their frontal lobe. What would you do or how do you help them? Okay, well, first of all, in a way, I go through a little bit of what I call psychological archaeology. And that is to find out where the negative thoughts, low self-esteem, came from. And I tend to find that bullying and teasing is a major contributor to low self-esteem and depressive, if not suicidal, thoughts. The tragedy for those with ASD is they tend to believe because they think people don't lie. Lying is a concept they find difficult to understand. Um, But it's so incessantly... Uh, said to them these derogatory comments that they start to believe them but they also don't have friends to neutralize or contradict what the predators say so when I go through somebody who's actually quite depressed at their and, and analyze their inner voice I say you didn't get that voice from your parents and you didn't get that from teachers you got that from predators the tragedy is you started to believe it and so when for example they say you're stupid you're stupid you're stupid Whenever you make a mistake, well, that proves they're right. I am stupid. So you're going to get a lot of belief starting to occur about yourself, and that will change the way you perceive the world. Unfortunately, the person starts to believe what they say because it, their, their view is it's said incessantly, but also um, their view is it must be true, and people wouldn't lie People with Asperger's think other people are as honest as they are, and it must be true. But this also means that whenever the person is, say, teased for being stupid, whenever they make a mistake, that then makes them feel, well, that proves I'm, I'm stupid because I keep making mistakes. So you get this sort of self-perception of believing the predators, but also there can be an intense loneliness that occurs that will be a contributory factor for depression. And another factor is people with ASD don't like change. Um, But that then means that they may not have a concept that I can change. I can change my beliefs. I can change my self-perception. And I can change to have a more positive future. Here the person has mind. I'm on this track. The only way out of this track is suicide. But then I say... You can actually switch tracks and you can have a different destination. I love that. I love that. Um, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about lie. Give me one second to tell everyone you are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as The Brain Broad. Remember to say to the very end of the show where I'm going to do stories from the We are speaking with Dr. Tony Atwood from Australia. I'm in California. He's in Australia. Isn't technology awesome? He's the writer of many books. If you want to get a hold of him, by the way, his website is www.tonyatwood.com at AU. I'm not sure you'll get a hold of him, but you'll sure read a lot about him. We'll ask him for uh, that contact information at the end of the show. He's written many books. We were kind of digging around in the idea of Asperger's and how it's been affected by the DSM-5. And and we've gone afield, and I've gone ahead and become the patient example for him to uh, elucidate many of his concepts and theories. So we're having a really good time. And one of the things that Dr. Atwood has mentioned 
is that Asperger's people find it hard to lie. So I'm going to open this up and go back to him with a little story. So when I was a child, um, I was slightly peculiar. It was hard to know whether I was peculiar because of my abusive home life or because I was just peculiar. We've since discovered both. Um, I remember at one point in my life, I had all the kids in the neighborhood. I, I tended to like children that were younger than me or people that were old, which is, you know, not that uncommon. And so I told all of the children in the neighborhood that they were my very favorite person one at a time as I was with them. And I was not lying. At the time that I said it to each and every one, they were my favorite person. I've since discovered that I think the favorite person is the one I'm focused on. So, so it wasn't so much a lie um, as a um, maybe too great a truth. It caused a problem where all of them talked to each other, got in a circle around me, and threw things at me, and yelled at me, and called me names, and liar, liar, pants on fire, and all of that. It was a very confusing and difficult thing because I hadn't realized I was doing something terrible until that moment. And I'm going to add to that another short story, and then we're going to play with this a little. Um, I remember in the middle of a conversation with my mother, she wanted very much for me to uh, respond in a certain way. I don't remember the conversation itself, but I remember saying to her, Do you want me to lie? And she said, Yes. And I was so perplexed and so aghast that a parent could be so just just wrong that they might want a child to lie and I'm sure it had to do with you know social etiquette or something so here we are I learned to lie I got very good at it actually and got very confused by lying because I couldn't tell when I was lying or when I wasn't lying because I did the thing I described in the first story I 100% focused into the story I told and I lived a lot of the time in my head so let's talk about lying a little bit Dr. Atwood what do you think about those ideas Okay, I'm going to take you back to that group of friends and saying that you're my best friend and so on. What happens is that typical people have grades of friendships and an intensity of friendships. What you probably had was just two grades, friend and best friend. And where others would say, ah, we had a great time, you're really good, I've enjoyed our game today or whatever it is, you only have two words to describe it. So you felt that it was more than just a friend, but the only way you had of describing that concept was best friend. So that's where it's understanding the depths of friendship that goes from acquaintance to soulmate. And typical kids are able fluently to express where you are on that hierarchy, but you may have only had two words to do that. Now, the next one is, is lying. Yes, um, many people with ASD are self-appointed seekers of the truth because when you speak the truth, you know exactly where you are. If it's not the truth, you're uncertain and you don't want uncertainty. So most with Asperger's initially are very, very direct and they will speak it as it is, which is great. But then they can discover lying and I found some will do it for a variety of reasons. One, to shut someone up. So if mum says, have you put the garbage out? One is on the computer. He's going to say yes, because he's going to buy time to carry on with the game. But not thinking 
of the effect on the emotions of mum when he's lied. So that's going to be another factor. But then another factor is that you can start to use lying to entertain people in, in the form of creating stories of what's occurred. For example, I had one child who told his mum about how good he was at playing soccer and he scored a goal at school and, and she was, wow, I'm so impressed and she was delighted. And she phoned up the school to congratulate him on including him in the team. And they said, no, he's not in the team. He just made it up. He's lying. But he was doing that to please his mum. But I can also get those with Asperger's who in the adult years will lie in a way that other people can't understand what's going on. And, and with a poker-like face. In fact, I've got two clients who are millionaires from playing poker because in the Aspie way... They can understand the statistics and probability of the cards in the game, but also they are so straight-faced that neurotypicals can't read whether they're anxious about their cards or confident about their cards. So I think the concept of lying involves in a different way. I absolutely love this show. I love that you're able to to just respond to everything that I'm bringing forward, and I love that we're talking about lying because I think that people are too... Um, they're just too black and white about it. They go, oh, well, you're on the spectrum, you can't lie. And so they end up missing all of this stuff that happens. I think for me, I found that telling all those people caused me great pain and embarrassment. But then my mother was teaching me that lying was good. But I couldn't understand, as you said, the different layers of things. So it became telling lies is good, but then it's bad. And there was a great, uh, you know, if I would tell something to um, entertain, I remember a very... To, very similar to what you were saying, I was telling a story in school. I stood up. They, everyone was supposed to take a turn talking about what they did as, in the summer. And I stood up, and I started talking about when I was on the swings, you know, in this playground. And that was kind of boring, so I went on and on. And I talked about the skunk that I saw, and I petted it, and I held it. And I could feel the whole whole classroom rolling their eyes and waiting for it to end. And I couldn't shut up, and I couldn't stop talking. And I wanted somebody to stop me so badly. And finally. <laughs> the teacher's like, okay, Lynette, enough, sit down. Right? And it was just really, really painful. And then learning how to cope. In, so here I was talking so well, and yet learning how to cope with all of these subtleties, these ways. A, a great savior for me was learning to say, that was a lie, it was for fun. And I, yeah. yeah, I passed that to my children. I was like, you could say that was a lie. It was for fun. And then it gave them permission. Yeah, I think that's important. Okay, Lynette, what other areas do you want to explore? Um, I liked something you said that I really want to look at. You said they don't want the uncertainty. And I love that. And I think that's a lot like when I was describing feeling like I didn't have something to focus on not having a role, being uncertain. I love how you describe these things, by the way. You're really useful. I hope we can talk again someday. Um, so talk to that. Be more, you know, flush that out a little for us. They don't want the uncertainty. Okay. I think one of the inherent characteristics of, of ASD, well, there are several. One is, is you're born by nature a very anxious person, but you're also trying to understand the rules of the world, and so you want consistency to try and decipher the pattern. Those with ASD are very good at identifying patterns and breaks in patterns. 
So if you're having a difficulty uh, working out something, you want it to be consistent to work out the rule of what's going on. And so the person doesn't like change. There can also be um, another characteristic of waking up in the morning and having in your mind a clear plan of what the day is going to be, but not have a plan B in case the unexpected occurs. It's not on the schedule. It's not in my script. And I have prepared my brain just for this action. And if it doesn't occur, then the person gets really quite agitated because I don't know what else to do or say. So there's a strong drive for consistency, predictability, certainty. This is why some will like certain careers in science and other areas so that they have that degree of predictability. Um, teenager that I saw with Asperger's was asked for his definition of hell, and he said surprises. Oh, isn't that interesting? Um, I, when you were saying about the degree of difficulty with like wanting science or math or something, it also brought to mind I took computers and I loved the bits and bytes of the binary code and having full control and knowing exactly what would happen. And as soon as it turned into the software of today's world, I wanted to run screaming into the woods. So. Okay, but this, this characteristic can occur in the arts, in having a talent in drawing in photographic realism to make the detail accurate, rather than necessarily presentational art. Very interesting. So I want to go back on something you said here because I think it was um, when you said when they wake up in the morning and they know that they're going to have this plan A day, they have their schedule mapped out and, and know how it's going to uh, unfold. Something, I, I hope you don't mind that I keep doing about me, about me. I never do this for my show. My people are going to be going, oh, we know so much about Lynette now. But I think it's fun. So one of the things that really helped me was when I chose a when I purposely chose as I woke up in the morning an adjective about myself that would set me on a certain path for the day as opposed to having the schedule I would wake up in the morning and what I'm using now is what would a great person do with this day I have planned and by starting with that kind of an adjective I changed um, my outlook to it, and I became more flexible. Have you ever uh, worked with something like that, or what are your thoughts on that? I think you've got to encourage the reality of the flexibility, and it's not necessarily a disaster or tragedy if it's something different to what you expect. What you're doing, I think, in a way, was discovering what works for yourself, and when you had that sort of personality or style, you had a role or a script and once you've adopted that role or script, it could be somebody who's going to be more flexible. And this is a common characteristic. The difficulty is, is working out who's the real self um, and I'm becoming the person necessary for the situation or the person that people want me to be, but I must hide the real me. And that goes into the area of psychotherapy. And so what I tend to do with those with ASD is obviously not want to cure it. I want the person to understand it and come to terms with it and use it constructively in their life. So that's my own approach to psychotherapy, is, is self-acceptance. I love you said um, use it constructively in their life because, in fact, no matter what you're dealing with, it can become a, a, 
constructive thing, whether you're a wheelchair person, whether you're a person with, um, you know, fractured thinking or hallucinations. I've seen people, you know, with hallucinations end up channeling great information. So, um, yes, you can be constructive. I got married five times. Talk to me about relationship and Asperger's. Right. Well, five times. <laughs> well, you know, hey, and I turned a bunch of them down. So... <laughs> Okay, Lynette, um, I'm sure there's lots of stories behind that, but where do you want to go with that? Well, I, I just think we've had a little fun here, and we talked about the focus. You know, like, for me, when I was focused on a person, they became the most important person in the world to me, whoever I was focused on. And so um, if I was focused on being with a with a, a particular guy I was dating, uh, since I didn't see their whole face anyway, I always had to focus on, I had a problem with my sensory visual processing. And if I, if I only was looking at their eye, they had the best eye in the world. And, um, and I just said yes. Like I'm, I would just get taken by the momentum of somebody else's personality. And so then once I was married, I'd have to deal with the fact that it wasn't really working. So I thought it might be fun for you to just talk to, you can, you can diagnose me if you want, you can psychotherapy me if you want, I'm way beyond it, so it's all good. Um, or you can just tell a story maybe about somebody who struggled with relationships, you know, romantic relationships. It would be nice to hear a story at this point. I love stories. Okay. What you're describing there, if I go back to intensity, um, ASD is a condition of, of extremes, um, inability, either hopeless with maths or brilliant at maths, great with uh, reading or hopeless with reading. And I was earlier talking about the personality style of either introverted, withdrawn and shy and reluctant to the intrusive, intense and sometimes, um, should we say, wearing your welcome out by that degree of intensity and reading the signals. So if you're on the, in the area of great intensity, that can be initially in the relationship very appealing, that somebody is very much wanting to know you so associated with whatever it is that you're trying to do, that the person becomes almost a special interest and there's a risk of almost stalking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're laughing too much. Oh, I, I like to have fun. <laughs> okay. So when you've got that degree of intensity, you're not necessarily seeing the reality of that situation. You're, you're blind to it. You're blinkered to that process. But then when you see the actual nature of the relationship, then you can see things that really may not be so compatible. The enthusiasm and energy overcomes and makes you blind to the challenges that are going to occur in the relationship. And so that's where, when it comes to relationship issues, we're very much trying to encourage the person with Asperger's throughout their life to make friendships and then friendships develop into romantic relationships. But as much as we need to help the person as a four-year-old make friends with kids in the sandpit, we're also working with those with Asperger's who are often males with Asperger's, late developers in terms of relationship or romantic experiences. And so what can occur is I'll, I'll talk to, to teenage boys with Asperger's who are saying, you know, I'm 18, 19 and I've never had a girlfriend. And I say, wait until girls are in their mid-twenties when they start to become maternal. And then they'll fall in love with you because of your personality qualities that they're going to find appealing 
But at the moment, they're into risky, cool guys who aren't necessarily good uh, partners in life. But it means that when they meet that person, they've got to understand the dating game. And I'm now going to shift into the, the girls and women here. In their naivety and it delight of being the centre of attention by a male, there is a serious risk of sexual and relationship predators taking advantage of the Aspie teenager and young adults' vulnerability, naivety. So I am concerned that there can be relationship predators who will take advantage of that. So when it comes to later on, there's also the question, not only how do you maintain the relationship, but when children arrive, to explain and help the person with Asperger's how to be a good parent, because that may not be something that's automatic and intuitive to a person with Asperger's syndrome. So when we come to relationships, it's experiences, vulnerability, knowledge, and new dimensions as that relationship progresses. That's awesome. I have to admit, when they were no longer a special interest, <laughs> it was time for the next one. <laughs> so. Well, it's like collecting all the Beatles records, and once you've got all the Beatles records, this is boring now, I've got to find something else. That and, and feeling like you've always been judged, so you want to make sure everybody loves you, it's kind of a combination of all the above. Okay, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. Um, I would love for you to tell people, you know, anything that you want to say here about how to contact you, where to look you up, what books you want to, it's, let's, let's promote Dr. Tony Atwood for a minute, and then if you can just tell a success story. Let's land them on a story of somebody who's done really well so that parents can go, oh yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, as you're based in the States, I'm returning to the USA in the fall, and in October I'm going to uh, Columbia, I think in South Carolina, somewhere in Texas, um, to Seattle and then Hawaii. So it's sort of a tour, including also Toronto and Montreal. So if you want to hear a bit more and, and actually see me and listen to the things I say, go onto my webpage. There's more information on that. My main publisher, Jessica Kingsley Publishers, have a number of books that I've written. One of the most recent ones is on encouraging affection with people with autism spectrum disorder. And that's something that a few people have actually covered. Um, so there are books coming up. If you want to go, the, the main resource for literature in this area is jkp.com. Um, the next book that I'm writing is going to be on depression and a program that can be used at home or with the person with Asperger's themselves to try and alleviate the depression. Now, Lynette, you're wanting a, a success story, yeah? Yes, please. Oh, I'm, I'm going to a success story of my sister-in-law, Penny, my wife's sister, who I first met when I was 14 years old, and she's one of my heroes. And um, she was suicidal because of bullying and teasing at school, and homeschooling literally saved her life, and I've always been a great supporter of the benefits of homeschooling as the alternative was a suicide attempt. And with Penny, that would have been successful. Um, she also developed a crush on someone. She had a fascination with trains, and uh, Deltic trains in particular. Um, and she then developed a crush on a 
member of staff of the railways and married him. She was 17 and he was 47. Now, people would say, you know, is that going to last? Well, it lasted 27 years until because of the age difference uh, now. Um, he died, unfortunately. Penny's in her 50s. And she lives alone with her cat. Her special interest now is, is ferries between England and continental Europe. And uh, she loves frogs, and her garden is made as a, as a refuge for, for frogs and so on. And I think she's been remarkably heroic in how she's coped with other people in a way she tends wanting to socialise extroverted, but clumsy when she does and can't understand what she did that was wrong. Her mother gave her an enormous amount of support through the years. Her mother's died, and my wife Sarah now has very long, regular phone calls with Penny in England to provide her with support. But Penny's one of my heroes. She's had a wonderfully satisfying life in a number of ways. She's very anxious, but um, I find she's an absolute delight. So for me, having watched her from 14 years old to... Well, I mean, their view was she's going to go into an institution to married for that number of years and uh, finding her successful niche in life. She's still Penny, but um, she's been remarkable in her achievements. Well, actually, that's a really beautiful story, and I, I love uh, the fact that he was so much older than her is one of those things that you'll often have people try to steer someone away from instead of recognizing that whatever is working is okay. Um, yeah, it is. It, with Asperger's, the usual social conventions don't apply. Exactly. So she was looking at the quality of the relationship, not the age difference. Yeah, that's and beautiful. That's what worked for her. That's really beautiful. That's that's. I love that. My daughter actually married someone older than me, and she's had the best marriage I've ever seen. She's not Asperger's, but it, it's it sort of broke the rules about what you're supposed to do. I mean, it, it's just you have to open up the the boundaries a little bit. Thank you so much for being here. This was maybe my favorite show to have us just. You just went with whatever I threw at you, and we just talked about it, and you gave the best information ever. Um, and I have to tell you, I, I do only see good things when uh, people are talking about you and saying that they met you and, and got some advice from you. It's always positive. So I want you to know that you have that beautiful presence out there in the world and that you're just an impressive man. Okay, thank you. That means a lot to me because when I first met autistic children when I was uh, 19, I wanted to become an expert in this area. That was my ambition. And to have what you just described, the value that I have in the world of autism, is is wonderful fulfillment of that dream. And, and actually, it's a wonderful antidote to a midlife crisis. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, you just hang on to it then. And okay, thank. Uh, all right, I'm going to have to go close the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. That was Dr. Tony Atwood, and he is fantastic. We are blessed. And I figure that since it is time for Stories from the Road, I should tell you a story about my marriages. <laughs> this is like the most revealing show. I always tell people that I was quirky and that... Um, 
you know, that I used to have Asperger's and all of that. But, you know, until you get into talking about it story by story, it, a lot of people just roll their eyes and go, yeah, sure, you did, sure, you did. Well, I guess I did. I have many more stories, and they're going to be in a book called The Seven Senses of Me, if I ever finish it. Uh, hopefully, hopefully that'll be available in about two years. So, all right, so stories from the road. Let me pick husband number five seems appropriate. So I, I met this, this gentleman at a time when I was ex having an extremely difficult time raising my children. Uh, I was stuck with all of a sudden all of the work that I had disappearing and uh, we, I had just bought a house. We just put us into a rural you know, setting. So I had this new mortgage and all of this expectation on me financially that I hadn't had like two months before. And, uh, and then immediately lost all my work. Uh, I was doing different things like writing for magazines and I was doing a collective of things and I had uh, gotten a bunch of people who were supporting this homeschooling program I was doing with my kids and I was stuck because it all ended for a variety of reasons. Bam! So I went up in my in my economic need and down in my economic reality. I remember taking a job at um, with the railroad, and they were telling me, you know, oh yeah, there's lots of money, lots of money, but they wouldn't put a figure to it. And I went and I did the training, and finally at the training, they they mentioned how much it would be, and I sat and did the math, and I thought, oh my God, we are going to starve. This is not enough money. So their idea of enough money in mind was obviously uh, not with this house. I I had just taken on and eight kids and four grandkids and so it was uh it was a really tough time and I was uh doing something creative to make some extra money and I met this guy and that's all you need to know and so I met this guy and he fell for me head over heels and right away I knew this wasn't a working situation. Now, I've, you know, moved along in my abilities with the kids and stuff, and I, I was not so Asperger's at that point. Um, still a little, though. Hadn't found neurofeedback yet, so still coping with a, a lot of unusual ideas uh, in my head and ways of perceiving things. And so not really sure how to get him to go away. So he would became a stalker. And I always thought that what I should do is write a book called I Married the Stalker. Because no matter what I did, he wouldn't go away. And I was afraid to call the police and have him removed when he would just show up at my house. And the the fear of calling the police is probably a pretty natural fear for a lot of parent, uh, a lot of people who get in this kind of situation because you feel like your kids will be, you know, permanently scarred by seeing such thing and you should be able to handle it you know and I and I would spend hours and hours explaining to this person I don't like you I don't want you here I want you to go away we don't you know and and the main reason I didn't want to be with him was because he didn't like children I'm like I adopted eight kids how can you fall for someone who adopted eight kids it doesn't make any sense so 
you know, I could go on and tell you all kinds of stories, but the end of the story, <laughs> or the end of the the beginning of the end of the story, was one day we had we'd gone hiding in these cabins, and somehow he had found us. He was rich, so I guess he was able to use resources I didn't have. So he he shows up and. In the middle of the rain, we see his hat going by the window, and I'm like, no, how did he find us? I had managed to hide me and the kids off in the boonies. And so I just gave up, and I thought, I am not going to get rid of this guy. He's going to always be able, he's got too much money, too many resources, always be able to find me. I'm never going to get rid of him. Maybe I should marry him. Okay, so remember, I've been married four times at this point. So I know marriage isn't a death sentence forever and ever, amen, unless you make it one. And it really made sense to me at the time to think, well, you know, maybe he just needs to catch the birdies hunting so that he can let go and leave me alone. And so that is how I got married for the fifth time. And they each have a story. That was number five. I never lived with him, and we did eventually divorce. So, in fact, it worked. I'm Lynette Louise, your Telling Too Many Stories on Myself host. This, otherwise known as the Brain Broad, or the Crazy Broad maybe today, huh? Uh, this is a new spin on Autism Answers, and thank you so much for being here, because without you guys, I would just be talking to myself, and that would be a shame, because today's show with Dr. Tony Atwood had lots of actual eye-opening information, and I really hope it helped you. Till next time. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of a new spin on autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Myself, spinning in circles and talking to myself, I can't hear.